time. Take your quarterly if you have. If you need a copy of the lessons, I have uh, four or five more up here that I could uh, airmail to you. But we're looking today, as we continue these six studies, uh, over the weeks uh, previous, we've looked at our commission. Uh, we've uh, studied about how to start with prayer. Then we studied the message, live the message, and today we're going to look at share the message, okay? Share the message. I hope you had a chance to read and to follow up on some of that. Now, you folks who are joining us by way of YouTube today, uh, if you're joining us this morning, it's all live. If you join us after Sunday and you're viewing this on any other day of the week, this is 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. We're studying in Acts chapter 17, so if you're at home and you're looking uh, for what we are studying today, take your Bibles in Acts 17 and follow along with us for these next minutes, okay? Uh, again, the subject matter today is share the message. And that's sometimes uh, where the church sort of gets hung up in there. And when I say the church, it's us, we, the people. We get hung up there. We somehow love to worship. We come faithfully. We're diligent. But then when it comes to sharing our faith or sharing His message, sometimes we're not quite as ready. And we'll talk about even some reasons uh, there that uh, will come to our mind. So let's pray as we get started. Father, I love you. I thank you for what you have entrusted to us, our life, our journey. And Lord, remind us that part of our journey is sharing our faith with others. So bless now what we say, what we do. Uh, help the ears to hear, but also the hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. On page number 110, uh, he always will give us a good introduction. And he talked there about using a commuter uh, to go back into the school. If you read that, uh, he would tell you that it would take nearly an hour to do this. And he would use that as a time to study. He would read his Bible. Uh, and he was talking about a, a passenger who was near him, and if I remember right, it was a lady, and she kept peeking over to see what he was reading, and uh, finally he got about enough of it, and again, uh, he was about to miss an opportunity to be able to open a discussion, not a debate, just a discussion about uh, what he was reading, and he said, finally, I stopped, and he uh, says, says there that she had noticed that, and he said, in an awkward, after an awkward moment, I was convict, convicted to engage in conversation. But he said, went on to say that in his morning prayer, he'd asked God for an opportunity to do that. And it's amazing how God is faithful in all of these uh, places in our life when we're asking Him. He said he almost missed that opportunity, though, because uh, he was focused on his own time in the Lord. Now, folks, let's, let's be honest. We all miss some opportunities. We might be in the grocery store, and we don't think that's the place to talk about it. Or, or you might be somewhere else, and there might be certain peers around, so you don't want to get to influence uh, them or influence by them. But uh, in our journey, we need to seek opportunity to live the message and share 
the message as well. In Acts chapter 17, though, we're fixing to read verses 16 to 18, and uh, let's see what Paul tells these uh, folks down in Athens. He said, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews, with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, if you read your, if you read your study today, what you realize... Uh, is the writer gives us on the next page uh, some detail about these Stoics and these uh, Epicureans. And so in a minute we're going to get to study a little bit about what they believed, okay? Uh, however, uh, Paul would, as the writer said, Paul uh, had a window of opportunity. And it comes there in a time when he goes to a place called Athens, uh, and it is in Greece, and he comes upon uh, this uh, place and these people who were committed to idolatry. And uh, we'll see it in a moment that even there, they had erected an altar, and it was inscribed there to the unknown God. Now, friend, that really speaks to what people would believe, doesn't it? And therefore, when we maybe are in a place, and we might just take for granted somebody knows uh, more than they do about uh, the Christian experience or about the Bible, uh, we, we may miss great opportunities, those windows uh, that the writer called them. Now, uh, there could be that air of spiritualism that have nothing to do with God. However, uh, in, they were engaged in uh, worship, but it was idolatrous. And Paul takes this opportunity by engaging them in conversation. Now, again, I said to you last week, and I'll probably say it again next week, we all have our own ways of engaging in, uh, in discussion, do we not? I can sit up here sometimes and I listen to people as they engage one another. You know, and that's not bad. It's just simply that we have unique ways to do that. But somehow we don't look uh, quite as uh, diligently for those opportunities to engage people uh, in the world or as we go every day. So as you turn the page there, uh, we want to notice uh, what the philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics uh, might have in common but uh, yet different. This was a deeply religious people. You know, don't let people who tell you they're religious get you caught up too much in that because uh, in many ways, excuse me, people are very religious. They do things religiously even as far as their worship goes. However, the writer is quick to remind us that between Sabbaths, now where was Paul going on the Sabbath, you remember? He was going to the synagogues. That's where he would find these Jewish peoples, his people, we could call them. And as he would get there, uh, engaging, and uh, one of the verses talked about they were even debating, 
But as he's there discussing, and then they go out, there's six days between Sabbath and Sabbath. So the writer's quick to remind us that between Sabbaths, Paul could be found out among the people in the city, in the marketplace, as they would be sparking conversation. Now, look there, first of all, the Epicurean philosophers. It says, They believed the purpose of life was in finding pleasure and eliminating pain. They thought that God, if He existed at all, was not involved in our lives. Furthermore, they did not believe in life after death. Now, that's, that's two key factors there, okay? Number one, they believe uh, there that God, if He exists, notice that uh, He's not involved in lives. And secondly, they did not believe in life after death. Now, folks, that's, that's two of the critical things we uh, really believe, is it not? And that is that there's one true God, uh, studied it last week as I preached, one true God, uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, three, but yet the same. And absolutely, life after death is one of the uh, most highly uh, sought-after principles that we have our faith built upon, isn't it? And we have Jesus as our prime example. Now, remember, there were more than one resurrection in the Bible as we know it. Uh, Lazarus, one of the notable ones there. But there were more people that came to life after death than we sometimes want to study. But Jesus is the man who died the cruel death but was resurrected on the third day and he lived there among his peers and those people uh, another 40 days before he ascended to be with the Father. That's exciting, is it not? But the Epicureans did not believe that. Now the Stoic philosophers, they were pantheists, believing in an ultimate divine principle that exists throughout the universe and nature, including human beings. They believed the way to realize your fullest potential was to live by reason. They valued self-sufficiency. The Stoics believed they could eliminate suffering through intellectual perfection. Oh, there's groups of people that have grown to be large groups that believe that in America today. They probably are known not as uh, Stoic philosophers, and they're not known as Epicurean philosophers, but they have other titles. You know, they could be those, uh, uh, they're like the Christian science. There could be others that carry other cultic names. Uh, and as a result of that, notice uh, that they're very deeply religious. So similarly, Paul is going up to Athens there, and he's finding that there is a group of deeply religious people. And sometimes, definitely in the course of a conversation with people, you're not going to get that, you're not going to get that deep and have enough time to sort it out. That, that comes through sometimes lasting relationships. So looking at it from the level of, of helping people come to a place of understanding. Now, in our modern age, uh, many people would, we know them as uh, Christian apologists. 
Now, to, to, be a, to, to know something about apologetics and to be what we call a, uh, an, an apologist, it doesn't mean we're apologizing for what we believe. It just means we're given a good defense for what we believe, okay? That means we know enough about what we believe to be able to carry on a sensible conversation with other people. And folks, you don't have to go to Bible college to do that. You don't have to uh, go get uh, in seclusion for three years and come out of the loft and do that. Hey, just begin to meditate on what you and I know about Jesus. And Paul did that. You remember, the reason Paul could understand these people so well is because he was one. There was probably nobody who knew more about uh, what he believed in than Paul. And then when the Lord uh, blinded him on the road to Damascus, he became one of the greatest tools in the tool chest of God that there were. Why? Because he could relate to the Stoics and the Epicureans because he had been there. Now, let's get back to the thought there on uh, page 112. The cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire, where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle had once taught, where intellectuals still loved to debate, Paul would just dive into that discussion with them. Uh, they were worlds apart from their beliefs, but to be sure, he said, the philosophers made fun of Paul, labeling him an ignorant show-off. We shouldn't be amazed at that. If you remember the book of Acts, was it not? When he came back among his brethren one day, they said, Much learning hath made thee mad. See, they thought he had fell off the deep end. Now, sometimes, let's be honest, they may not tell you, but if you begin to share your Christian faith and what you believe with somebody else, they might leave that day and say, what has got into her? Or what in the world happened to him? Because they have no way to relate to what we're talking about, except the Spirit intervene and give them instruction for where we are. So with that in mind, we've hopefully developed a little bit of understanding about Paul's day when it says that they were those people uh, who were debating. See, verse 18 said the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Now, friend, we probably halfway comfortable with a discussion, aren't we? I would say I am. But now, when you get in that debate section, I'm going to sort of go to the other room because many people, what they have done is they have become so, they have become so intelligent in, in debating, and I, I don't want to pop your bubble, but sometimes, if I could just be honest with you, uh, there's groups of people that either come around riding on bicycles or getting out of minivans, knocking on your doors, and you know what, they're, they're taught how to debate some of these things with others. So Paul goes into Athens, and that's what he finds there. Uh, Let's look at uh, verses 22 and verse 23 now on page 112. 22 and 23. Paul stood in the middle there of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the object of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. 
Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You know, as I, I'm just reading that, you saw me like I was in a daze there. You probably thought I was uh, flipping out. But I was thinking about idols, okay, idol worship. Sometimes we, we want to go back to the golden calf and think that Aaron and the people there of Israel, the Jewish peoples that created that golden calf while Moses was up on the hill, we sometimes want to think that was the first uh, idol that people would worship. Friend, let me tell you, there, there, were, there were, was idol worship before that. I think of one of the cases, and you probably remember it, when Jacob uh, was bringing his family back from his father-in-law. You remember he'd been over there, he'd served 20 years. He came out of there with two wives and two or three concubines. Uh, a lot of cattle. But you remember, he was the one coming back to meet his brother, whom he had uh, taken the birthright from, or bought it, some would say, scripturally. But you know, as they was leaving uh, from his father-in-law Laban, you remember that uh, his father-in-law sent a group of people to, or maybe it was he came himself, because somebody had stolen his teraphim. You know what, it was a trinket or something. And in the case of, of uh, them leaving, Laban realizes that my, my, my idol is gone. Now, you remember one of the girls took that, and she stayed in her tent, and she kept it there uh, concealed. Now, I'm just saying all of that to you, that you get a picture of almost back to the beginning of time, there's been people who feel like they've had to have an object to worship. Friend, aren't you glad we don't have to have an object to worship? We don't have to have an inscription to worship, do we? However, if we're not careful, we could fall into that uh, captivity because we could think about how what we would call worship is coming to a place where everything is set, the table is spread, not literally, but figuratively, and all of the things fall in place. Boy, we really worship today. And we have to think what made that, what made that so real. Now, Paul saw this altar to the unknown God. Now, on page 113, you might have already done that, but talking about uh, gospel conversations, five of those little uh, things that helps you there to maybe find some common ground as a way to start a conversation or discuss it. We may come back to that in just a minute, but I want to move on with these verses first of all, if you'll allow me to. Uh, Paul now engaging with the Athenians, uh, looking for an open door to draw them into a conversation. And he used that there with the unknown God. He said, I noticed something there. There's, a, there's an altar there. And the inscription is to the unknown God. Now, we all have some, well, not all. In most of the churches that we grew up in or are in, we only have one inscription in the building usually that we, we know of. What is it? Where is it? On the communion table. Have you ever noticed the, the inscription? This doing remembrance of me. But we don't worship that, do we? And I said that, that we understand we don't need objects for worship. 
Did you know some people would really, if, if you changed your architecture of your uh, worship facility much and took that table and put it in a room and only brought it out for communion services, some people would really get agitated because there's a, there is a style in which we've got to have our, our architecture this way or our aesthetics this way. And I'm just trying to say that, that we think about what makes real worship to us. Is it where we are? Is it who we are? Or is it back to who He is? And we're just literally coming to worship Him. Paul would engage them people. Notice, the writer says religion had nothing to do with the one true God. He said there a point of commonality was a springboard for him to talk about what they did not know, and what they did not know was Jesus. You could go back to the New Testament. You remember where the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his chariot, and he's waiting uh, on those whom he is transporting, but he's sitting in his chariot, he's reading from a scroll. You remember the, uh, I'm going to call him an evangelist, he came up to him and said, Hey, man, do you know what you're reading? Now, he didn't say it just like that. He used some polish. He said, Understandest what thou readest. And what did the Ethiopian eunuch say? How can I, without a teacher, how can I except someone should guide me? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? You remember the evangelist said, Hey, the scripture said he started way back there in the book of Isaiah. And what did he wind, where did he wind up? You remember? He said, this is talking about Jesus. Now, friend, that doesn't really sound that complicating, does it? But it sometimes carries us across a little divide that we're not comfortable in going across. But yet Paul would have his way. Uh, we find that the evangelist had his way, and other people have their methodology as well. However, it's just engaging in those conversations. I illustrated when I was preaching this morning in the first service about Clint and Harriet being out of town. And they are. They're on a little uh, sabbatical for themselves. They also are engaging uh, some people in some mission uh, opportunities. And also searching out the mission uh, opportunity will be taken in July, some of us, for a little construction mission. So they involved in all of that, but he's emailed me back a few times about some of the folks that he has met, and you know, and I won't say a whole lot on the internet. They may not want me to say all of that, but what's beautiful about that is the fact that, man, the unique ways they can involve other people in that discussion. So we worship a person and not a place. We're to be worshiping uh, God and, and, and not... Uh, uh, anyone else, but they had built that altar there to the unknown God. He says, the writer does, that the Athenians clearly were attempting to make sure they didn't unintentionally forget and thereby risk offending one of the gods. Well, it gets confusing when we think there's more than one, doesn't it? Because then we got to realize, then we got to try to remember, now how do I make that one happy? How do I make that God happy? How do I make that God happy? And, uh, you know, uh, whether you're Muslim or whether you're Hindu or whatever they might be, you know, there, there are groups of people that are not offended by the message of Jesus. 
But what they do is they just equal Him among those many other gods that they have in their, well, many of them have them in their homes. They have a sanctuary just for all of their gods. But Paul engages them now in the fact that they have said this is to the unknown God. So we're going to worship Him lest we might have forgotten one of these. Uh, maybe we'll appease Him. So notice, uh, if you would, on the bottom of page 114, uh, there, there's a little of instruction there. He said, We may think people aren't open to hear the gospel. They often are willing to discuss spiritual matters when we start with a point of commonality which places both parties on equal ground. As followers of Christ, we never should approach the conversation with an air of superiority. What does that do to people? That'll make them find the off switch in a hurry, won't it? Because they don't, they don't necessarily care what all we know. They don't care about our many degrees that we've accomplished, you know. They, they're going to get open uh, to us when we're on some common ground, and we seem to be able to relate to them for where they are. He says, as followers of Christ, never have superiority. But he said, begin to look and listen for common ground concerning people about, uh, concerning, uh, concerns people talk about. The term logo they wear, team logo they wear, and the religious symbols they display. In my younger years, I remember one visit I made particularly. I was in the house of a guy one day who was not a professing believer, had a godly, sainted wife, but uh, this gentleman had had a stroke, and uh, he, he, was in, he had become bedridden. Uh, he could walk with the help of others. But I, I began to frequent visit him because his wife uh, was, was faithful. And uh, one day I was visiting him after lunch, if I remember, about the middle of an evening, and I went in and I discovered that he had a, he had a visitor. And I said, well, I'll come back. Oh, no, no, that's just my neighbor down the road. And, uh, you know, I didn't know who his neighbor was. But anyway, that little conversation that we had, neighbors stayed a little while, then left. And little did I know that the guy who was visiting with him there, whom I invited to church as he was leaving, little did I know he was a deacon, old deacon, who was an unattending deacon, backslidden deacon. I don't know what other words to use there. But I invited him to worship. Did you know the next Sunday he was in worship? And I don't know how many, maybe a decade or two he hadn't been there. But we, we were brought onto some common ground that day. Why? We had a sick friend who was laying in bed and we started talking about some common things. I was in their neighborhood visiting. Now, this is not because I knew how to do that. I just didn't have no better sense at that time than invite that man to worship with us. Now, had I known he was... Uh, Deacon, and had I known he was, uh, hadn't been there for 20 years, I don't know how I'd have handled that. I'm glad I didn't know nothing about him. You know, in, similar, in similar ways, Paul didn't know nothing about these Athenians, did he? Except he could understand the Stoics and he could understand the Epicureans. But he found one thing that they could talk about, and that was that altar to the unknown God. And with that alone, he could, he could carry on that deep conversation about knowing Jesus and who He is. The last passage we'll read is verse 30 and 31. Verse 30 said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, 
God now commands all people everywhere to repent because He has set a day when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Now, most people are concerned about the hereafter to a degree, aren't they? I find they want to know something about it at least. And Paul talks to them about that quickly. He said, there was a time God might have been very patient with you because of what you believe or don't believe. He said, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a good way of looking at a man's eye and say, hey, you, you lost, man. Without Jesus, you don't have no hope. But Paul, again, being the apologist that he, was, that he were, he was able to relate to those guys, or people, let me say, on their level. And he then would include the life that would be to come when he said, The Lord there will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. So with that in mind, Paul carries them each time it seems when he's with them or so forth, that he would uh, engage uh, with them in a little deeper scenario or substance, does it not? Now think of it, when he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, he was stopped by some in the crowd who ridiculed him, but Paul's witness wasn't in vain. There were others who wanted to know more about that. And we see that uh, in these passages that we read. Hey, listen, Jesus, Jesus will draw people together or, or He will be someone who will divide people even further apart, right? And we should never be those people who someone can take the name of Jesus and divide us. But being the church of God, the, the saints of God, we should be versed enough to be able to just say, hey, you know, this is who Jesus is, this is who I was, this is what He did for me. And uh, that, that's literally what Paul did in, in this passage today. Any question? Any thought? Nothing? Okay, next week we study one more lesson in this sequence, if I'm correct, and that is uh, trust God to work. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to work immediately. He's at work, isn't it? But what we're doing doesn't always bear fruit immediately. I had a fellow the other day. He came by the house to drop off something for Lydia. And he's talking about where we live, our place, etc., etc. He said, would you like to have a grapefruit tree? I said, I would. He said, now... They say it takes a grapefruit tree six or seven years to bear. I said, well, I hope I'm around to be able to pick some fruit off of it. And, you know, with, with that in mind, my thought is that many times what we're doing in the name of Jesus might take six or seven years to bear. But we need to be prayerfully persistent, knowing that God is able to accomplish His purpose in all people and places. So keep sowing, okay? Thank you much, and we'll uh, get ready for another worship service here in about 30 minutes.
But uh, glad to have you. Now next week we'll be passing out new quarterlies and uh, see what our, our newer stuff will be as we begin uh, our, our new quarter on the 6th, okay? Thank you. God bless you.